Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for another day. We thank you for another chance to be in your presence and in the presence of those who call you Father. And we pray that there be a great spirit of Abba in this place, that whatever we're thinking, dealing with, whatever we're going through, we would know that we can cry out to you. And we thank you that you have met the outcry of humanity by giving us your word, by giving us your spirit, and by coming to us and your son. And so let the words of my mouth today and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, let's just get it out of the way. This is not a particular vestment for the second Sunday of Advent. It's also not a sermon illustration. I broke my wrist riding a dirt bike. Not exactly unsafely. Bad trail conditions. Though some of you might say riding a dirt bike at all is unsafe, so touche. Touche. Now you all, not everybody has to ask me afterwards, so that was self-serving. It's out of the way. But you can pray because it's painful. All right. Well, on the second uh, Sunday of Advent, I'm going to take the unconventional route, and I'm going to talk about 1 Corinthians 4. John the Baptist is usually uh, the central figure of this Sunday, but there's an important and there's a related reason this part of Paul's letter to Corinth is in here. Paul's helping uh, or is, is being held up to scrutiny, to comparison. He's being held up to judgment in his leadership. And his response is transparent. It's challenging. And I think it is really helpful. Paul cares deeply for the Corinthian church. But he's not deterred by their judgments of him. He reminds them and he reminds us that we live with a lot less clarity and a lot less objectivity than we think we have about ourselves and about other people. We have less light by which to see than we think we do. But a better light is coming. This reality can and it should foster a humility, but I think also it should foster a confidence in those who follow and those who await Christ together and who await Christ's judgment. It should give us something to consider as we set this Advent apart for our own self-examination and for our own season of reflection. So let me set this up by first giving you some Advent history that you may not know. Once upon a time in 4th century, 4th uh, and 5th century Gaul, which is present-day France, and in Spain, Advent began as a preparation not for Christmas, but for Epiphany. It was a full 40 days, just like Lent. And as you may know, Epiphany comes in early January, after the 12 days of Christmastide. If you're relatively new to the Anglican or liturgical tradition, you might think the 12 days of Christmas is just a song. It's not. It's the, the days after Christmas that we celebrate, and after that is Epiphany. It comes in early January, and that's when we celebrate the visit of the Magi, a.k.a. the wise men. They come later. We celebrate Jesus' baptism, and we also celebrate the miracle uh, at the wedding of Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. So, that's what Epiphany is. And in earlier centuries, Epiphany was a special season for new Christians to be baptized and to be welcomed into the church after this 40-day penitential season, this penitential advent that was focused on the second coming of Christ, preparing themselves for this. And this is why John the Baptist 
originally even figures prominently in Advent. His ministry was one calling people to repentance and to baptism through his preaching of repentance, through that ministry of baptism. He was preparing individuals for the Messiah, the Messiah who was soon to be revealed in Jesus. Baptism meant, and baptism still means, a turning away from, a washing away of one's former way of life, a death and a rebirth so to speak. So for an adult, this called for reflection. It called for preparation. Asking what this rebirth actually means for me as I follow Christ in anticipation of his return. So this is what early Advent was about. Now you're wondering, what about Christmas? If they just went from Advent to Epiphany, what about Christmas? Did they just skip right through it? No. But it's interesting Let me just offer three quick points of interest. First, it wasn't until the early 3rd century that celebrating what's also called the Nativity, it started to get traction. Two early church fathers, um, Irenaeus and Tertullian, they didn't even include Christmas as a feast in the church calendar in the 2nd century. Why? Well, according to one of their contemporaries, another uh, church father, Origen of Alexandria, He uh, basically just said, birthdays are something only pagans celebrate. So there you go, you bunch of pagans, right? Um, It took some time, actually, before Jesus' birthday, as it was celebrated, became the primary way they celebrated the Incarnation. And it's a beautiful holiday, right? But birthdays, the day of birth, was just not as big a thing. That might be hard for us to believe, but it actually wasn't until 800 A.D., when they celebrated Charlemagne becoming the emperor, when he was crowned on Christmas Day, that Christmas Day got a whole lot of traction. That's just mind-boggling to us, really, uh, isn't it? But it's just, that's uh, the way it was. And this is the second point of interest. It wasn't until the Middle Ages that the church began actually using Advent to prepare for Christmas. They were still pointed toward Epiphany. They were actually still pointed toward the theme of the second coming. This, this Lent-like mood, and it's not as deep as Lent is, this penitential season, this preparation, but it remained alongside in a form of tension, so to speak, with this joyous anticipation of the first coming of Christ. The first coming, the incarnation, and the second coming of Christ together in tension. We celebrate, but we also anticipate. Does that make sense? Only to one person. Okay, good. <laughs> Here's the third point. It's thematic, and I think it's helpful in where I want to take this. One main reason the church chose December 25th for Christmas Day, not scientific really, uh, but it was because it was the winter solstice in the Roman calendar, which meant it was the shortest day of the year. St. Augustine explains it with a lot of uh, confidence in one of his 4th century sermons. He said, hence it is that he was born on the day which is the shortest in our earthly reckoning, after which the days began to increase in length. He who bent low and lifted us up chose the shortest day, yet the one whence light begins to increase. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, the Savior came into the deepest imaginable darkness to bring ever-increasing light. That was the theme. That was why they said it's going to be this day. And by the way, linking Jesus to the Son, 
to daylight was, uh, was already supported by various prophetic scriptures. Malachi 4.2, we didn't read that today, but we read some of Malachi. He says, unto you shall the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness arise, and healing is in his wings. Now that seems like a mixed metaphor, but actually when they said wings, they actually meant the rays of the sun that look like wings. This beautiful and poetic way of expressing that the light will bring healing as it spreads throughout the world. So I want to kind of leap off of this point. The theme of light in the incarnation of the Son of God is also the reality of His second coming. According to Paul, who in our reading in 1 Corinthians 4 today, um, he says that Jesus will come and will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. What is unseen will be revealed. What is assumed will be proved or disproved. What's really there and what it really is will be made plain. It'll be universal like the kingdom, but also personal like baptism. This is the nature of judgment, biblically speaking. Judgment exposes falsehood, but it also brings a partial or incomplete understanding into fullness, into clarity. And like the sun throwing its rays into a dark corner, judgment says, there it is. There it really is. That's what it really is. Judgment reveals reality, whether or not it's the reality to which we are clinging. For all its negative connotations, for some, judgment brings a kind of relief to those seeking for what? Understanding truth, seeking vindication, objectivity, seeking justice. In this sense, its wings are healing. Perfect judgment liberates. It liberates. And so you might say Advent's posture of repentance is this renewed recognition that when Christ comes, every illusion, all pretense, all partial understanding, all partiality will be exposed. Here's the thing. Reality will be unmistakable. It won't be based in opinion. It won't be based in preference. And this is the reality that we want to be looking for now. Now. Because as Paul is telling us here, judgment deals not simply with what is done or left undone, although that matters. Judgment reveals the heart, hearts, the loves from which our lives have been shaped. Something only the Lord himself can fully see. What we really desire, what we're really after, what our agenda really is, our real motivations. So a season of penitence like Advent is not about behavior management or change. What is it about? It's about dealing with our hearts, getting honest in the light of God's judgment that has come in Christ and will come in Christ. And we live between those two. All of this brings us to this very interesting point that Paul is making in his first letter to the Corinthians. Here's what he essentially says. You're making judgments about me. I'm doing what I believe to be right. I think I'm fine. But listen, I don't know. I don't know for sure. I can't know fully, nor can you, about me or about yourself. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He's saying only God knows. So for now, what I do know is this. We're servants of Christ, 
and stewards of the mysteries of God. And it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's what's moving me, he's saying. I'm trying to be faithful, not what you think I should be. Because the light is coming, and then we'll really know. Then we'll really know. Here's the specific background from earlier chapters, because this is, this is something that's been building, and actually his argument was building through basically the whole front end of this letter. The Corinthians had apparently divided into two camps. Imagine that. In the absolute first years, the church is already splitting up. One of them is elevating Paul's leadership, and the other is elevating Apollos, who is a man known for his powerful preaching, teaching, and his intellect. In familiar fashion for that day, and even ours, some hero worship is going on. We learn early on in the New Old Testament that celebrity leaders don't arise just because some egotist, narcissist, or opportunist finds a platform. People want them. People want them, like it or not. It's fact. A king, a symbol, the larger-than-life leader as an archetype of human excellence and achievement in whose shadow our shortcomings or weaknesses become less deep and distinct. Heroes in whom we can place our hope and to whom we can give our hearts, if only a little bit. We all do it. Or either we react and go in the other direction. I think it's simply a condition of the curse of sin which has us backfilling the loss of our fellowship with the perfect Father and King and God. Paul suggests as much when he says in chapter 3, for our reading today, he says, For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? At best, it's a distraction from Christ. At worst, it's low-key idolatry. It's often well-meaning, but almost always a letdown. It's a shallow form of security for people living behind their fig leaves. And we all do it. To lose fellowship with God as it's intended has dramatic effects upon our hearts and our desires. You feel it every day, and so do I. Paul is confronting it head-on, what they're doing. His agricultural metaphor, which is also back in chapter 3, is probably the most potent. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we're God's fellow workers. So Paul sums it up at the beginning of our reading in chapter 4. We are oikonomos. We're stewards. Stewards of the mysteries of God. We're like managers. And it's a, word, it's a picture of a role in that day. We're like managers who distribute the goods of the household. Like the ones who literally hand out the silverware before dinner. That's all we are. They're God's mysteries. It's God's wealth. We're not the master. We're not owners. We're just people who have a particular trust for which we're responsible, and here's the thing, and for which we will be held accountable by God. We're fellow workers. And Paul's content to say, I can't even really fully judge myself here. Not really. I'm not aware of anything obvious against me, but... And that's an important but, isn't it? What Paul wants them to understand is that whatever judgments they're making about him 
or Apollos to assign superiority or inferiority to judge who is worthy of allegiance, these cannot be objective. That belongs to God. So what's Paul saying? He's saying hold it loosely. You know, broadly he's saying don't judge. It's not saying don't be discerning, but he's saying you don't know everything. Don't judge. Hold it loosely. We hold it loosely about our own selves because it's not about us. Which brings us to the question. Well, if judgment is subjective, judgment's partial, how can Paul, how can we know what this stewardship and this faithfulness really looks like? How do we even aim? Look at verse 6. And you're going to hear the colic that we read today popping into your brain, maybe. Or you can look back at it. He says this. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. So essentially he's saying a lot of this stuff going on is because they've, they've created lots of intrigue and controversy and innovation beyond what has been delivered in the gospel. Paul relates the measure of his and Apollos' stewardship and faithfulness to what? The boundaries of what is written. The prophetic revelation of the Holy Spirit found only in the Scriptures. Something bigger than they are. In other words, if you want some objectivity beyond your own comfort or discomfort as you live in this tension of following Christ, as you steward your own responsibility, as you try to make sense of who to listen to, who to trust, who to like, you're going to find it only in one place. That's what Apollos and I are doing, he says. It's not from us. It's from God. We're trying to live with the healthy self-criticism and even self-forgetfulness that comes from submitting ourselves to something greater than ourselves, something more lasting. That's the pattern. He's saying, do that. And he goes further in verse 7. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's not from you or me, he says. We are recipients of these mysteries, of this transforming truth. We are not arbiters of it. As much as we investigate and study, and we should, we are not those in control of the witness of God or the mysteries of God. We are servants. We are stewards. And that changes everything. We don't stand over the Scriptures we don't stand over one another and judge. We stand in the light that they radiate and we reflect it. The powerful irony here is that Paul, understood in his own generation by Peter and others as being under the unique inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's being led to write the next chapter of Revelation, but what is he? He's ultimately, uh, he's simultaneously diverting attention away from himself. This is the pattern of Christ. This is how Scripture came and how it remains through servants and stewards in the pattern of self-emptying that Christ set for us. If you want the Lord to speak through you, and not as inspiration of Scripture, but to speak through you, it means self-emptying. 
It means servanthood and stewardship. Not a platform, not self-importance, and not based in even as discerning as you might be, what you can ultimately understand as though it is some form of objectivity. It's the same posture with which Jesus lived and taught. Can you believe that? These words are not my own, he said. The Father is teaching me, he said. And he challenged everyone to weigh his works and his words against what? The Scriptures. Not their own traditions. If we're honest, we still share this Corinthian temptation to gather at the feet of those who not only inspire us, but who draw us in with ideas that we're already predisposed to believe and embrace. Those who scratch our itching ears, because in the end, unlike Paul and certainly Jesus, they want to please us. It's a powerful temptation. The Corinthians are an example of how even with faithful teachers, this is so important, even with faithful teachers, we can elevate our preferences over the principles we are being taught. Wanting what seems like the right thing for the wrong reasons or wanting the wrong thing for what seemed like the right reasons. It's subtle. The carrot that is dangling in front of us, friends, now is the idea that we can follow Christ without any serious confidence in what is written. I bump into this constantly. In what's written and the history of our interpretation, which the Holy Spirit, I believe, has been involved in, that not only gave us the creeds, but that has preserved the faith for 20 centuries, even through the perennial failings of our leaders. That's astonishing. You know who ruins any movement? The movement. You know who has not ruined the movement of Christianity? Christians. In spite of ourselves, because yes, Christ has sustained in His Word the truth. We are great-grandchildren of the Enlightenment. We're grandchildren of Nietzsche and Freud, and maybe you've never read them. You don't need to. They're in the water. We are children of a modern culture of media expose and of cynicism and of controversy. We love it. We lap it up. It feels right to us. It shows up at both ends of politics and religion. We're trained, we are indoctrinated to distrust and to focus our attention on what's wrong with everything, including the church. And I'm sympathetic to that, to some degree. I'm in the water too. But listen, hear me in this. Trust is a vacuum. If you're not trusting this, you're trusting that. You know, as Dr. King uh, said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. For Christians, our something is found in what's written. That has not changed. It will never change. And our anything is either ourselves or it's the prevailing winds of whatever our contemporary culture will bring us, just as it's done throughout the centuries. In the words uh, of last week's gospel, Jesus said his word would remain even when heaven and earth, as we know them, cease to exist. We can either embrace this or reject it, but we cannot live long between the two with any real confidence or lasting faith. I'll close with something Paul says nine chapters later. It's part of the same message. He says this, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will, they will cease. 
As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What I know will catch up to what is known about me. Now that'll make your head spin, won't it? Paul is fine to call them, the Corinthians, and us into this tension of unknowing while living in faith. Even confidence. As far as what Paul knows and what can be known on this side of Christ's second advent, it's not everything. It it can't be. We look in the mirror, but there's certainly not enough light there to see beyond the outlines and the partial contours of who we really are or who we really think we are. But one day we will be face to face with reality. This is the message of Advent, friends. We will know fully. For now we are content to be known fully. That's love. That's what faith looks like. It's where faithfulness begins. It's also what love looks like. God sees, God knows, God will judge. That's a good thing. Because what's written reminds us God loves. The question is, do we trust it? When it all shakes out, our faithfulness and our stewardship of the mysteries look like the love of Christ. As we watch, as we wait, and we work. This is where Paul is driving the whole letter. I'm not trying to impress you, he says. I'm trying to love you. I want you to love one another. Love is not sentiment. Love is a moral excellence rooted in truth and pointed toward others. Here's how Paul just describes it, and you've probably heard it, at a wedding at least. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. And I love this line. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Why? Because love never ends. There is a message of Advent. In other words, love is the coming light. The future for which we are longing and waiting in great endurance through the hardship of faithfulness, it looks like an everlasting love. This is the light that has always known us. And this is the light by which we will truly know ourselves. This is the light by which the love we've lived will be revealed and rewarded. And until then we say, come Lord Jesus. Until then we pray, Give us more light by which to live, Holy Spirit. And we pray that today. Give us more light. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.